Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. What's up, everybody? Okay, so this episode has been one I've wanted to record for a while now, and I finally was able to make it happen this week. And I wanted to speak with somebody who is actively and currently serving as a police officer in this country. And I am very grateful that Tommy took the opportunity to speak with me. The episode covers a range of things, like some reform things that we could see take place, some of the discourse that has been lost. I think it's really easy when you're railing against the state on a regular basis, as I do, to lump in all state entities and treat them as the enemy. But we do need to remember that oftentimes these people are individuals, they have families, they have hearts and lives, and they're they're good, decent people. And I think it's important to at least give a voice to them and give them the opportunity to give their side of the equation because we're very... Um, inclined to only hear and believe and listen to our own voices and our own friends and circles. So I wanted to have Tommy on so we could have a conversation about this. So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. I hope that you learn something and take away and I hope that you go follow him because he's a really decent guy. So thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. For purposes of anonymity, given the climate and doxing and all of the shitty people in this world, Um, We'll call him Tommy for the sake of the podcast, but um, he wishes to remain anonymous. And I always respect that of the people that come on my show. So I'm just letting everyone know that in advance. And Tommy. I'm actually just really ugly and I don't want anyone to see that. Oh, shut up. I always tell people I have a face for radio. (laughs) I was in radio when I was younger, if that tells you anything. Oh, that's exciting. What type of radio did you work on? Like what station? Like what type of music? Um, I did. Uh, I worked at a public radio station uh, for a while when I was in college. I did co- regular college radio, uh, and I worked um, for a while in the office for a Mexican format radio station, believe it or not. That's uh, cool. And then uh, I did promotions and some very limited on-air stuff for an oldie station and a rock station that were in the same office. Very cool. That's I always, it's always interesting to hear people's stories like, here's where I was a long time ago and here's where I am now. So that leads us into um, the topic at hand. You are a police officer. So I want to know kind of what brought you into that career path. And um, I have other questions, but let's go ahead and start with how you decided to become a police officer. Um, I had considered it off and on for a while. Um, and then uh, about 15 years ago, I was uh, working a kind of a high-risk physical security type job. And uh, a friend of mine there told me that uh, the the police department near where I was living was hiring. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I kind of liked the responsibility of my job, but it was really boring, which, uh, you know, is a good thing, but it's still boring. So uh, I went and went and applied. And, and thankfully for me, they were hiring anybody who would fog up a mirror at the time. So I, I got the job. So what type of police work do you do? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a city officer. I, I have in my old career. I'm, I'm, I've actually worked for a few different city departments. Okay. And would you say, I, again, I don't want to try to get you doxxed or in trouble or anything like that. Would you say that you work in a metro, like a larger metro type area, a mid-range? What type of um, um, area I, do you I work for one of the larger departments in my area. I, I can put it that way. It's a, okay. it's a, good, it's a good size agency. Okay. Um, my first, my first agency was was a definitely a large metro. So, do you still? What type of officer are you? Do you work beat? Do you work investigations, narco? Like, what kind of? I'm on patrol. Uh, although I've got my fingers in other pies as well. I'm a, I'm a training officer. Uh, I do collision reconstruction. I'm on the riot team, uh, and I'm also a drone pilot. How cool is that? Yeah, it's actually pretty boring, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> know I guess there's okay so I'll kind of be very transparent with you I mean we engage a lot um publicly formerly I would have considered myself if you were to put me in a bucket I would have really considered myself a back the blue kind of person I always I grew up respecting authority I grew up 
respecting the police. I still respect many of the officers who put themselves in the line of duty. Like to give that civil service, I still respect you. Like I I respect everyone until you give me a reason not to, I guess is the best way to put it. But over the course of the last year, I have very much changed my position. I am no longer a quote unquote back the blue all the time type of person. I am much more discretionary with who I give my support and respect to. And I don't say that to be, I I don't say that to create conflict. I say that because I have watched with these lockdowns and, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests. And I understand officers are put in a position where you're being asked to enforce laws that really, in my opinion, are very unconstitutional, shall we say. Right. And, and so that, that has put me in a position where I, I look back, you know, you always look at history, you look at the China's, the North Korea's, the Germany's in World War II, the, you know, you look back at these fascist totalitarian societies and how they got started. And it came from people saying, well, I'm just doing my job, you know, like, it, it came from a yes man type of authoritarian society that put people who who didn't necessarily deserve it behind bars, so to speak. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. So I want to talk first before we get into all of that. I just wanted to make my position clear. I, I'm probably going to lose followers because of this, but I don't care because I think that boy, both sides of this um, situation should be heard with respect and and understanding. I can understand and respect somebody's opinion if they do not, you know, support the police. But I also can respect and support somebody who it has been a police officer for, you know, thirty years and they're getting ready to retire. I can also understand and respect why they're still in the position that they're in because I have a family, like I have children. I have responsibilities, a house, you know, things like that. You don't just be like, well, I don't agree with this. So I'm going to fucking quit my job. Like the people who are able to flexibly do that, like it's, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just feel like. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I wish that was me. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about, um, I, I'd sent you some bullet points of some things I'd like to discuss. The first thing that I want to discuss is morale. So talk to me a little bit about, as a police officer working in a larger metro area, what the morale looks like within your department or just in policing in general. My my department, at least I'd like to think so, is is still one of the better ones in in, uh, the larger geographical area of, uh, you know, where I'm at. And, um, you know, it's pretty decent. It comes and goes. Police officers are, are some of the biggest hens out there, you know, so so we like to stand around and complain and gossip just like everybody else. Um, but um, I think overall, and, I, you know, I think, you know, verifiable trends would back this up. I think that morale and, and law enforcement is definitely on the on the downturn. Um, a lot of departments are having a lot of trouble keeping them officers employed I mean, you see what's happened in Asheville. They had, you know, 85 officers quit, which I don't know exactly how big their department is. But, you know, unless you're someone like New York or L.A., 85 is a lot of officers. Right. Uh, so it, I think that, that you know, overall, it's, it's definitely taken a pretty big hit. How do you think we combat that? Like, how do you think from a policing perspective, how do you think that you can get morale back up? Like, what... What steps are the departments taking? What steps are people taking to ensure that? I mean, because I I would imagine the suicide rate within the department is similar to that of even maybe like veterans, like the the people who give their heart and they're all for something only to be treated as a villain for having done so. I, I wonder what that looks like for you guys. Well, well, it, it is difficult. Yeah, I, I think the... Not not to digress or not to not to go on a tangent, but I think the the side effect is is that there's fewer of those people in police work now. There's fewer right. people in police work who are willing to, you know, who who want to get into it for that reason because they see what's happening. Um, yeah. And a lot of those people are are turning around and leaving if they already were in there. Uh, as far as how to fix it, 
I mean, in the, in the micro, you know, you always have things like, you know, better equipment, better benefits, better pay, you know, better supervision, which I've, uh, that's one thing I've been very lucky with throughout my careers. I've had some very good supervisors. In the macro sense, I mean, stop, you know, and it dovetails into something you mentioned, stop asking us to enforce some of these ridiculous laws and some of these ridiculous edicts. Right. Um, you know, we 99% of us, we don't want to be out there, you know, writing people tickets for being outside their house or, or, you know, you go into things like, um, you know, marijuana enforcement or, or, you know, any of these, any of these picky things that I think a lot of people can do just fine on their own. Um, and even those of us who do their best not to enforce it, even if we're asked to, then, you know, then you, you end up caught in the middle and you have, you know, leadership asking you why you're not right. and people yelling at you because you're still part of the department that does it. Um, and again, my department kind of took a, a hands-off approach to that as far as the lockdowns went. And we haven't had any really serious protests or anything. We've had a, a few peaceful demonstrations, which we're 100% fine with. We, uh, you know, we've always encouraged people to, to exercise their rights as long as they're not messing with anyone else. But I think that the mission of law enforcement overall kind of needs a, it kind of needs a facelift. It needs a, um, a reworking. And, you know, let us let us kind of get back to, to more basic law enforcement functions uh, that, that give us room to allow people to live their lives as long as they're doing it peacefully. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, you know, somebody was talking the other day about our police force is really becoming more of a militarized force. Like we're starting to see a lot more emphasis on SWAT type um, solutions to situations that could probably be handled more on a localized level. And so I'm interested, you know, talking about, you know, how to rectify some of this. I, I wholeheartedly put the blame on legislators and county commissioners and um, city councils and the people that are putting these edicts in place that are, that are forcing you guys to be the bad guys. So, you know, you see fucking Kamala Harris, she's going to, to fucking Latin America to s fix the solution to the border, but not going to the border. Unfortunately, I think that's part of what the problem is with policing. We need to go to the people who are writing these stupid laws and be like, what are you doing? You're making people who should be in civil service, people who should just be making sure they're not out here raping and killing one another. That's that's what the police should be doing. Not being worried about, does this person have a mask on in Target? Oh God, yeah, it, yeah. And and I was uh, I was pretty relieved at the stance my department took on that because I wanted absolutely nothing to do with any of that nonsense. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the militarization, and and that seems to be kind of a hot button thing that I see a lot, you know, in my Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of torn on that because what do you mean by militarization? Is it like guys walking around wearing cargo pants and external vest carriers instead of a traditional police uniform. And the fact is, is that, you know, it looks, you know, maybe it looks different, but those external vest carriers are a lot better for long-term health of the officers. No, no, no. I'm not talking so much about the, the gear and equipment. I'm talking about the, um, the, the way that, police like I, I don't know I just I guess because I grew up in rural America I grew up in the middle of a fucking cornfield <laughs> and so the largest police force that I ever saw was at a drunk driving accident like I there were no large massive protests there was no right. cry, like legitimate cry there's drugs you know there's fucking meth is like the next best commodity next to the US dollar in this state but <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that and I, you would think I'm joking, but I'm really not. But so like, that's what type of policing I'm personally used to. I've lived in, I lived in Birmingham, Alabama. So I, but I still, you know, I lived in Vestavia. So it's like, I was still not necessarily exposed to the NYPD epicenter type of policing that takes place in larger cities. So right. I'm kind of dumb when it comes to that. But what I see on television, of course, over the course of the last year is large. I mean, like, okay, sorry. I, <clears throat> I just now thought about something. So um, when the protests were going on for the Breonna Taylor situation, mm -hmm. um, 
here in Louisville, I, I work in Louisville, Kentucky. I live in Indiana. I, I don't live in Kentucky. I want to make that clear to everybody. I'm not a Kentuckian. But um, in Louisville, we had, you know, a lot go on over the course of the last year. And much of the time, it felt like the force that was utilized didn't always match the threat. And I don't say that in 100%. You know, there were people doing some really bad shit in Louisville. And, you know, I think that for the life of the officers, I think that you absolutely need that type of protection. But there's also the other part of me, and that's I think I'm internally conflicted a lot. If these people want to fucking destroy buildings and, and burn shit down, don't put yourself in a position where you have to get hurt in that situation. Let them destroy the building. Let them pay the consequences for that later. Yeah. I guess maybe it's just kind of what my thought process is. Well, see, that, that kind of goes back, though, to you know, the fundamental function, excuse me, of of law enforcement in that, you know, if we are not going to interpose ourselves between, you know, violent, violent people and innocent people in their property, you know, then what what exactly are you, do you have a police force for? Well, and I, I think that's where we get into government property versus personal property. So if we look at Minnesota and, um, the burning of pretty much the entire fucking city of Minneapolis. Like they burned so many people's personal property. Absolutely. Yeah. Versus Portland where they're outside of a federal building, firebombing it and things like that. Whose personal property is that? Well, that's the quote unquote, the state's personal property. Yeah. So that's where I feel like do it. It is, but then it's paid for by all the taxpayers as well. Right. So I, that's, that's my, I think where, and I'm not necessarily speaking so much for myself. I'm trying to play devil's advocate in some of these arguments. Right. So people are like, well, you have insurance. It's fine. Well, guess what? I'm an insurance agent. And I know that the first fucking thing that people stopped paying during the pandemic was their business insurance because they weren't open. So that was a cost that they could save. For the time being, so that they could put that towards their mortgage so that they could keep their business or their rent or lease fee or whatever. And so many of those buildings that got burned down had no insurance coverage because people had stopped paying for it. To try to see this from both sides of the equation, because I, like I said, I used to be a back the blue person. I don't think anybody should be burning anything down. I think that, you know, you have you have choices. If you don't like what the police are doing, start electing different types of commissioners, different types of mayors, different types of people who are going to, you know, put in the type of reforms or or things that you want enacted. I, I still believe in a system that is probably so far broken that it doesn't work anymore. Hmm. Um, a lot of people give me a lot of shit for that, but I I think that there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And I'm just trying to see things from other people's perspective. Yeah, I guess is I get that, and, and I'm uh, I'm kind of at least partially, if not completely, black pilled myself. I get that, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I would I'm, I'm kind of like you. I would like to think that if enough people, if a large enough majority of people started doing things the right way again, that maybe the you know that maybe the ship could be righted. It may or may not be the case, but I'd like to think that. There's a there's a big part of me that feels like we've gotten so so lost, so far away from the ability for the ship to be righted. It's like, you know, that um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean where the ship flips under the water and it's like riding under the water instead of above it. That's where yeah. I feel like we're at right now. Um, so let's talk about enforcement versus discretion. So... Um, a lot of policing to me seems like, like we were just talking about mask mandates, like your, your division took the position where they were like, look, we're not going to make you guys responsible for this. But there are a lot of agencies who did not give that discretionary, um, permission. So you had people going in churches, like here in Kentucky, you had people going to church in their vehicles, listening to the sermon through radio speakers 
And state troopers were showing up putting tickets on cars in the beginning of all of this. Wow. And it was like they weren't even inside the church. They were inside their own vehicles listening to the sermon through loudspeakers that were put outside and they were still given citations. That's yeah. That, that's a, uh, to me, that's inexcusable. It really is. Yeah. But, you know, the, 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 the other side of that though, is if those troopers had refused that order and refused that sort of order often enough, what's going to happen is they're going to be fired and they'll hire people who will do it. You know, right. it, it, you know, so it, it's still coming from the top that the, the main issue yeah, and I think, you know, I look at the fact that our, our capital is still militarized right now with troops, and I see all this language. I host a show every Friday night on Twitter, this basis thing, and I recap each week the stuff that's going on, you know, through the world, through the country, through different states. Um, and this whole, like, quote-unquote, rooting out extremism within the ranks oh, that's yeah. taking place is really fascinating to me because it reminds me of an effort to find the people who are willing to not turn the guns on the bad guy, but turn the guns on the people of the country. Right. It's, um, it's very much, um, I I mean, it's very, to me, very blatantly uh, based on the old Soviet model, you know, having the the political officers in every unit and all of that. That's that, that's right. what I'm seeing here. And it, it, it does frighten me. Are you seeing that on a police level as well? Um, in major departments around the country. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you don't get to be the chief. And again, I'll use the two biggest cities examples of like LA or New York or, or Dallas or Chicago. You don't get to be a police chief in a city like that without being first and foremost, a politician. Right. You know, um, I think the smaller the department gets, the the fewer people the chief or the sheriff or whoever the leadership is, the fewer people they're beholden to, and they can be more of a cop than a politician. So I, I, I think it's stuff like that is, uh, by and large, a function of the size of the department and the size of the city. Uh, but but the bigger departments, absolutely. So would you say, like... If, if I were to be pulled over by you and you knew I had marijuana in my car and it was illegal, would you take me to jail or would you just make me throw my drugs out and let me I go? I don't generally, this is just me personally. Right. If, if I, if, if I can find a reason to not take somebody to jail, you know, a, a, if I can find a, a reasonable excuse not to take somebody to jail, I won't. You know, if the only thing you're doing is driving around with a gram of weed, um, I will. And, and thankfully, I'm, I'm permitted to do this by the department. I, I, you know, I would have to seize the marijuana and turn it in. Right. I can't like just tell you to wind test it. But um, but generally speaking, that's all I'm going to do. But, but, you know, I'm, I'm again only speaking for myself. But, you know, are there officers out there who still do? Absolutely. Right. And I think that's I, OK. So. I think that's where people are so conflicted. I think, or, or even me personally, like I, there is a police officer who I'm friends with and I've actually, I have multiple police officer friends. One is actually a federal agent and then the other one is a deputy. And, you know, he and I, the deputy and I have had conversations and it broke my heart the other day. He was like, you know, I feel like I just need to take a break. I am getting it from both sides. I'm not a back the blue guy. I support, you know, the constitution. That's what I swore an oath to uphold. And, you know, I want to be the type of officer who does the right thing by the right people. And then at the same time from, you know, my department and the higher ups and things like that, I'm getting a lot of pushback, you know, and it's just like, I feel like internally, not only the conflict with you guys, but then, you know, you could get pulled over by two officers in the same day and have two totally different experiences. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the struggle too, is to know that, you know, that you're not going to have the same experience every single time. I think that's hard for people. They think that, and then that's where the the brushstrokes come from. Like, well, had one bad experience with one cop, fuck all of them. Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, if you, if you try to do something to I guess standardize that experience though, then 
you know, sort of this one size fits all, you're taking away that officer discretion. Right. And, and that would possibly force officers into a either, you know, hammering somebody who really doesn't deserve it or be conceivably letting somebody go who maybe does need to go to jail that day. And, and, and I, I, I get where you're coming from on that, but that's, you know, I think maybe the, the effort on that should be on departments examining officers who, you know, go hard on everybody every time and finding out why it is they're doing that. Right. Do you see, like, as an officer, do you feel like it's a problem where you feel like you've identified somebody who legitimately presents a threat to society and you've put them in jail and then you turn around and see that person on the street, you know, a week or two days later because things on the legal side, you have a prosecutor that's unwilling to prosecute or enforce the law or the crimes that are there. Yeah. And it's, I think that kind of comes from courts are so overloaded because again, we've gone and made so many things illegal that their job is not to prosecute cases. Their job is to dispose of cases, to get them off the docket. And if they can find even the slightest reason to not prosecute a case, they'll, they'll dump it because it's all they're doing is just making their own job easier. You know, they're, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Do you feel like it's the, the more difficult, complicated, legitimate crimes that end up getting dropped because they don't want to put forth the effort or the work? Um, I don't, and I'm asking out of pure curiosity, not with it. I don't know that that's necessarily the case because I see the same thing in our local court, you know, which, you know, you're talking about, you know, speeding, disorderly conduct, petty larceny, whatever, right. um, as you would see in the high courts where things like, you know, drug trafficking, you know, murder, rape, aggravated assault, it's the same trend all the way up and down the chain. Right. Hmm. Well, okay. So I'll give you a, a case example And you give me kind of perspective on how you would respond to this. So are you familiar with the um, situation that happened in uh, Michigan? I think it was in Ann Arbor. A guy named Omar Shafi had um, holed himself up in his parents' house. Are you familiar with that at all? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Okay, so he um, was living with his parents. I think he's like 30 something years old or late 20s. I can't remember exactly how old he is. doesn't matter. He had acquired quite a few weapons. There are some other circumstances that I am not privy to um, regarding maybe like a drug charge in his past, whether or not he legally could have had these weapons. I don't know all of those specifics. But the root cause of the altercation, his mother had um, lashed out at him. She had hurt him to the point where like his face was all scratched up. His eye was bleeding. Like there was a lot of stuff going on and his parents left the house and made a red flag call on him while he was in his home and in his home. That was their home. The police showed up and it was like a two day standoff where they had sent in a robot. He had shot the robot because he thought it was going to blow up or something, you know, like they thought they were, he thought they were trying to kill him. Right. And so if they had just left and let him leave and go to his girlfriends or where, why, why wasn't that domestic situation handled? Like many that you see where husband pulls wife, pulls knife on wife or whatever. Husband's asked to leave wife goes, but whatever, like domestic situations seem to be handled very differently when when guns are involved why is that my state has very very strict guidelines on um how domestics are handled you know so just just the standpoint i'm coming from um, we have as police officers in domestic situations uh we have very very little discretion Um, okay if if the if the incident meets certain criteria, an arrest is to be made, and if it doesn't, it's not. So um, you know that's the angle I'm coming from, um, right. and I don't like you know the, I don't like rendering opinions on on cases that I wasn't involved in, or in this sure, case, sure. No, I understand that. I was just giving this scenario as an yeah. example. Yeah. If the police were there, if there was if there was 
information, you know, and this is if, if there was information indicating that this gentleman was a legitimate threat to himself or others, then if police were to have backed off and just said, ah, we'll catch him next time, when they had him there, when they had him cornered, when they had him where they could reasonably expect to take him into custody. Right. Then if something were to have happened once they did back off and leave, then that leaves them open to liability. Right. This guy leaves the house and he goes, you know, goes over to, you said, his girlfriend's house or whatever and kills his girlfriend or, or you know, just loses his shit on the way there and, and kills some innocent person, you know, goes into going goes into a gas station and shoots the place up. Um, then, you know, then so that's in, in cases where there is a legitimate belief that the person is an immediate threat, that's simply, it's just not an option. Right. Um, now, you know, if, if there wasn't, you know, if there wasn't that information, then, you know, I can't imagine why they would have stayed outside his house for two days. But, sure. Um, well, and but, I think that there, there, like I said, there were other mitigating factors involved and he was right. heavily armed. So, and, with, um, and without knowing all of those, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's hard to come up with any, you know. Well, it leads me to my next point that I was going to make. So your, your counter argument of, you know, there would be liability on behalf of the officers if you didn't continue to stay there. And I think that's a piece that a lot of people miss in these types of scenarios. So they're totally, they're like, if you just fucking leave, then everything would be fine. Again, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here to argue certain positions that you guys are up against on a regular basis. Not necessarily that I agree with, but that, that are presented. So here's, here's where I, I take a little bit of issue with your statement of liability. How many of the mass shooters the bombing in Nashville, um, how many of the most recent that we can think of that made it into the news type situations, how many of those people were already um, under the FBI's radar, like their watch, where they knew that they were a threat and they'd been watching them? That's a very good question. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure all of them. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and what I'm left to surmise is that, you know, what what level of threat did the FBI suspect that they presented, and 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 right. will we ever know that? No, um, but and will they ever be held liable for allowing that person to remain? No, <laughs> yeah. It, and how many and how many people are they monitoring versus what kind of manpower do they have? Right. You know, if if the FBI and, and I don't know how many FBI agents there are, but I'm going to pull out a round number just just to have a number. Let's say there's 2,500 FBI agents, and and they are monitoring. You know, 10, in a country of 330 million people, how many people do you think they're monitoring? A couple million, five million. You know, right. so so that's got to come into play as well. Um, whereas in the situation you described, it's literally the officers have that guy there in an active right. threat situation. So the, the two, the two situations don't necessarily conflate. Mm, I don't know, man. Like if I know that somebody has been threatening to blow some shit up and he eventually does, like, I'm pretty sure he's been on the radar for a hot minute. Yeah, well, Probably yeah. should have been doing something about it. Well, well it goes, but it, again, it goes to, um, again, how many such people are they tracking? You yeah, know, no, I understand. How, I, I how agree hard, with how you. Hard it, you know, it makes it, you know, if you're tracking too many people, it makes it easier to, to lose track of them. And for, right, one of them for to, somebody to fall through the cracks. Right. Yeah, because I'm sure they do. I'm sure the FBI does catch people, you know, in the act of planning this stuff. But right. well, obviously they're not, not catching all of them. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> um, do you think that part of that – so? Just touching on the FBI real quick before we move to the next situation, the next subject. Um, do you think that the so like me personally, I lost every ounce of respect that I could have ever possibly had for the FBI um, when all of the stuff about Carter Page came out and that they were using you know warrantless wiretaps to literally try to infiltrate a um, political party for political reasons. The politicization of the FBI is a huge issue for me. I have zero respect for them as an agency anymore. Any, any law enforcement agency being used for, for purely political purposes. That's yeah, that's entirely out of bounds. Right. And so do you think that I, I'm, I imagine 
that many people in the country feel the same way that I do with regards to really any alphabet agency I don't have respect for, (laughs) being honest with you. Um, But it's much more on a federal level. Like I'm much more of a a state should be able to handle their security type person. So when Mm -hmm. we talk about city and, you know, county deputies, that kind of stuff, I'm much more okay with those type of police officers than I am with federal officers. Right. And I wonder if some of the disdain that people like myself have for federal law enforcement, if that has trickled down into um, part of the, I guess, disruption. I, I, I guess it couldn't help let do that. Um, and, and again, it, it, it loops back to what I said earlier, these, you know, the federal law enforcement agencies are not immune. They're being asked to do more and more and more as well. Yeah. And obviously, since they are federal agencies, you know, they are on the national stage. And so obviously their failings, you know, at least until recently, their failings were going to be, you know, even grander in scale. Um, you know, if if they were if they were scaled back or if their if their scope of responsibility was scaled back, then then again, that I think would would reduce the odds of them becoming involved in things like that. Right. Um, Let's talk about the escalation of violence. Like, do you feel that people are starting to respect authority a lot less? Um, I think it's becoming more common. Yeah. You know, if I were to, um, I mean, because I'll be honest, your feed was lit pretty, pretty on fire yesterday. Uh, that was that was that was kind of my fault, but I, you know, I I saw something that that it, you know, and, and it's been bugging me for a while, yeah. and I I reacted to it, and of of course, you know, it it, it drew counter reactions as as yeah, it brought the thought. trolls out real quick. Yeah, but you know, and I didn't, it didn't get to me per se because quite honestly, I was looking to root those people out and get them out of my feed. So I didn't have to bother with them anymore. Um, But it, I think on, on the streets, is there a slight increase? It depends on where you are, but I think things like this start in the counterculture, they start, you know, in social media or, and, and eventually that sort of filters up into real life. So do I think that there is going to be more of an upward trend in that? It, It wouldn't shock me at all. No. It, it makes me think about like the the ACAB and the Antifa and the anarchists and the anti-statists and all of that. Like, I don't know. I just, it, and it's hard. For, I haven't turned a news station on since the election in November. I haven't watched a single news show since then. I completely mm-hmm. turned it off. I got rid of all of my news channels. I don't even watch local news anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm and the same way. Do what? I said, I'm much the same way. If it's important enough, I'll hear about it. Yeah, Exactly. Um, so because I got so tired of being fed narratives, I got so tired of from either side, if I turn on CNN, it's one narrative. If I turn Fox news on, it's another. And both of them are intentionally trying to pit the country against one another. Right. So I just said, fuck you. I'm not watching you anymore, which is the only thing I can do. Right. But I, I don't know. I just, the idea of treating these fringe organizations as ideas rather than organized, structured organizations, I, I, I think that that's a misstep um, politically and, you know, legally yeah. from a policing perspective, all of that. Right. And I, I would tend to agree. I mean, if, you know, if a, if a dog starts barking enough, you know, you got to figure sooner or later it's going to try to bite, right? right. Um, it's what what I think it's done, what the permissiveness I think has done is, you know, 99% of these people you see on social media, you know, are, are either, you know, 12-year-old kids with, with 19 different accounts or, you know, the, the stereotypical loser in his mom's basement. And, <laughs> and and they will never, they'll never amount to any sort of actual harm. They're just, they're just blowing smoke. But right. What it's doing, allowing all this to continue, is it is emboldening the people who, who do actually have the wherewithal to do something. And, and you know, so it is it is still adding, even though those people don't do any actual direct harm themselves, I think it does contribute. And so allowing 
allowing that sort of um, movement to go just completely unchecked from top down is is uh, is definitely an error in judgment. I, I couldn't agree more. So do you think, talk to me a little bit. So one of a couple of the questions that I pose, like, what would you say if I were to ask you, what is the hardest part of your job? Like what makes your job the most difficult? <sighs> Overall, like in the, in the large sense, it's, it's knowing that, you know, I, you know, I feel like the little Dutch boy, I'm standing there with, with one finger in a hole in the dike and I'm watching water just come cascading down, you know, over the top around me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so there, there's this, this larger frustration that, you know, we're, we're, you're barely treading water if that, um, and, you know, and, the, and as far as day to day stuff, I mean, we all have days where we just really don't feel like getting up and going into work. Right. And those days as a police officer, at, at least, you know, comparing to other jobs I've had are particularly brutal just because of the emotional energy that you have to expend, you know, keeping a level temperament, keeping a level demeanor in situations where a lot of people wouldn't be able to. And th- those those individual days are, are are extremely draining. I I feel that many of your days probably feel and seem very thankless, if I were to wager a guess. I you know, my personal interactions, but I'm a fucking white woman, so there's my privilege laid out there for everybody. <laughs> but my interaction with police officers has always been incredibly positive. I um, I have been broken down on the side of the road and the person who came to make sure that nobody hit me while I was changing my tire was a cop. Right. I, um, was with my daughter downtown and a convicted, um, child molester exposed himself to my daughter oh, and a police officer is the one who helped that situation and did his very best to make sure that man never made it out of jail. Unfortunately, as we just discussed, he walks by my office every fucking morning. So, um, you know, I, my interactions with police have always been positive, right? But I can imagine in many scenarios that that is not the case for you. And so, you know, on the one hand, you hear people are like, well, they're fucking, um, what do they call you guys? Um, welfare recipients because yeah. you're on the government dole and um, you yeah. chose the career. You could go do another job, but they, a lot of people <laughs> I think are very young and very jaded to what career minded individuals are like. Like yeah, I've been at the same company for six and a half years. Yeah. I could go do something else, but yeah. You know, is, does the risk outweigh the benefit? Well, and, and, you know, I, you know, I've spent, I've spent practically a lifetime trying to, you know, make myself into the best police officer I could, you know, I mean, would I love to go and do something else and, and replace my income and like, you know, not have to worry about being spit on, you know, or worse. Sure. I'd love to, but you know, it's, it reality simply doesn't work that way. Right. What's the most rewarding part of your job? Like, what do you really, uh, on the days where you go home and you're like, man, that was a fucking good day. Like what's, what's the most rewarding thing about your job? There is. There is. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words because every once in a while, and it's nowhere because I'm sure you've gotten the impression it's nowhere near as often as I'd like, but right. every once in a while, you do actually do something that makes a difference to somebody that yeah. you do, you do make a, a positive influence. I mean, I've had people thank me for locking them up and you know, that's the first time that happens. Let me tell you what, that is a bizarre feeling. Right. But like they'll tell you, look, I was doing something stupid. And if you hadn't locked me up, heck knows where I'd be right now. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I had a guy who, who was drunk and had been left by his friends and, you know, he was abusively drunk and, and he was out causing a disturbance and I locked him up. And of course he gave me, you know, no end of crap for locking him up the whole time. And then I ran into him in court and in open court, he told the judge, look, this officer cared for me more than my friends did, you know? Wow. So, so stuff like that and, and not, and not just that, but things like that, where, 
where you turn around and you realize, okay, I actually did something worthwhile today or, or, or it comes back to you later that you did something like that. You know, that's, that's a big part of what keeps me going. Yeah. Um, do you, what types of, I mean, obviously changing the way that the laws are written so that they don't have to be enforced in stupid ways is obviously, in my opinion, the number one way for police reform. But internally as an agency, what are some things that you think could be done that could could help the public image for policing for because I, I mean, I have my thoughts and I'll give them to you, but I want to hear yours first. I uh, last time I interviewed for a, a promotion, I was asked a similar question. And, and my answer is one it, it, it happens one contact at a time. Um, I mean, externally, you know, our, 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 as they call it, customer service, you know, um, if, if there is a focus on treating everybody with respect during every contact, at least in, you know, not being a butthole until it's time to be a butthole. Um, but if there is a focus on, on respectful interaction, on, on, you know, not being badge heavy, on not, on not lording authority over people, but on, on talking, talking to them on a one-on-one as an equal, you know, you know, it just, just, my job just happens to be a police officer, but I'm no better than anybody else. And, right. and keeping that attitude, if that was fostered, I think that would go a long way. And I think also a internally departments need to focus on making policing a career and a calling again, instead of just a job. Right. Um, because I think like, like a lot of things it has for, for many, many, many people become just a job. I, you know, in, in 15 years, you know, or in the time, in the portion of that time that I've been in my current department, I have seen, I mean, God, at least 95, 98% of the department turnover. And that's not just retirements wow. and not just people being fired. People come in, they'll do the job for a year, two years, three years, and boom, they're off to the private sector. Um, and that, you know, there needs to be a, a focus on retention and fostering a fostering a desire for for people to do this as a as a career and a and I guess maybe a recruiting focus on people who are, you know, finding people who are willing to do that if, if they're even out there. anymore. So a couple of things that I thought and you don't know this and I would say probably most of my audience doesn't know this, but my. Um, dream as a child was to be Clarice Starling. I read at the age of 12, the Hannibal Lecter series, and I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with her. Like that's, that's what I wanted to do with my life. So one of my degrees is in criminal justice. And one of the, uh, um, my, one of my teachers is now the chief of police in Syracuse, New York. Okay. And, um, he and I still, you know, shoot the shit. And we, we talk a lot about He used to be the assistant chief of police here in Louisville. And we talk a lot about some of the things that we think internally that police departments could do from a reform perspective. One of the things that I personally think, um, I don't think that combat veterans should be hired as police officers. And I don't say that to dog combat veterans. I don't even suggest that they're not good at it. I think that they're probably incredibly adequate in the role. The problem that I have is that combat veterans are taught first to operate and function in a war zone. They're taught to shoot first, to to execute the threat versus mitigate the situation. So that's that's one place that or maybe not don't ever hire any of them, but perhaps hire less of them. And the second um, solution that I have thought of, and I don't know how this plays out. I don't know how many of police officers are combat veterans, but the second one is getting back to legitimate community policing, meaning that the officer who, who drives around in my neighborhood policing also lives in that same neighborhood Uh, because a lot of like Louisville is a metro area. So you have a lot of officers who work for the LMPD that live over in Indiana. They have no vested interest in the safety of a community. Not Mm -hmm. that they 
You know what I mean? Like, I guess so that's, yeah. I, I feel that even if it's temporary, like you have an apartment and your shift runs from Monday through Friday. So you live in that apartment in that dish. Like, I know that's not realistic because cops have right. families and stuff, but, um, but I, I do think that it would go a long way for, because I, and I keep using Louisville as an example. I don't live there, but I watch, you know, these, um, the, the gang, activity has increased significantly in Louisville over the course of the last, I'd say 10 years. And that's because we have the large influx of spillover from Chicago and Atlanta. It's like this weird hub for a lot of the activity that goes in between those two areas. And what I could see being a really good option, um, because you see like two year olds being killed in their kitchens, eating cereal And when the police come to say, hey, what did you see? Who was it? It's fucking silence. And we're talking about a two-year-old. Like, why wouldn't everybody jump at the opportunity to tell the police exactly who the fuck shot the kid? Yeah. And I think that comfort comes from knowing people. So if somebody lived in the community that they're serving, people would be like, oh, Mr. Johnson over there. I know him. And they'll go over and talk to Mr. Johnson, not police officer Johnson. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I, I think there, there is a, a ton of merit to that. Um, obviously, again, the bigger the agency you have, the, the harder it is to accomplish that. Um, but, I, you know, you do, you do look at these small town departments and these small sheriff's offices, and, and you definitely see that sort of relationship built. So right. anything... Anything that can be done to foster that, I think, would absolutely be a good thing. Even if, even if it were like, say, a a residential bonus, like you know, right. say if you don't make it a requirement, because you know, say somebody gets hired as a police officer in town A and lives twenty miles in, away in town B in his dream house with his wife and his kids, and his kids are going to the schools that he wants, right. you know. But if you were to say offer a offer a yearly bonus or a, or something to, to officers who lived in, in the specific area. But, but yeah, something, something of that nature, I think would, would possibly be very effective. Um, as far as the, going back to the combat veteran thing, I get your point there. Um, you know, and, and hiring military veterans has always been a, you know, a, a huge thing for pretty much any police department I've ever heard of. Right. You know, they're, they're almost the first ones that department. It's like the go go-tos, after. yeah. Yeah, it's and and I see the difference. The guys that are you know in the military and and even even among military veterans, those that had say combat MOSs versus those that uh, uh, how how would they put it in the Marine Corps pogues? Uh, <laughs> you know they have different approaches. So I, I right. You know if you are going to continue to hire military veterans and and I don't see that stopping to be honest I, I I don't see no I agree yeah um you know would a better focus maybe on on training and and working with these guys specifically and saying okay you know this is a different mission now right it's and, almost uh, literally like rewiring like you have to completely change right. the way because one training came first Right. And, and I mean, I have worked with a ton of military veterans and, and a lot of them have been exemplary police officers, but you, you know, I'm not saying it's bad or good or indifferent, but I do see a difference in how they approach situations as opposed to those who haven't necessarily been in those situations before. Right. So that, I mean, that's just a couple thoughts that I've had over the course of time and that, Mm -hmm. um, my friend and I have discussed and, um, I don't know. I just, I, I wish that there was an, a very easy solution to all of this, <laughs> but there's not. No, no, definitely not. Not as and, far along as we are anyway. Yeah. And it, it really hurts my heart because I, like I told you, I, I host that thing every Friday night and, you know, I have a couple really good friends that are federal agents that will come in there and then I also have these fucking crazy, love them, crazy and cap guys that are like, fuck the police. They show uh-huh. up and fucking kill it. You know, like, and it's just like, 
I feel like I'm in the middle, you know, kind of torn in between those two worlds because I want to defend my friends and be like, look, these guys are people that I would have over to my house for Thanksgiving dinner. Right. And you are too. Like you're, you're still my friend. Right. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's a hard, hard line to have. And so I think it's important that we continue to listen to voices on both sides Mm -hmm. of the aisle. And And that doesn't exist anymore. Even in this last shit show that I had, I mean, I had some very, very good conversations with, with people, you know, who were on the, on the side that I was, was whining about and, you know, and, 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 you know, nobody convinced anyone of anything, but, but we were able to have respectful conversation. And that was my main point. I want, you know, you disagree with me all you want, but, you know, don't come at me like that. Come at me like, Hey, why is this this way? You know, can you explain it to me? And even if you don't believe me, at least you sat and listened. Right. Yeah. I think respect is something that has long since been lost in conversations. Discourse is important. It's important for two people. And that's the thing. I would much rather have a conversation with somebody I don't agree with, or I don't see eye to eye with because that's the only time I learn anything or feel like I walk away from something a more informed person. And so that's why I started this podcast in the first place was try to try to articulate an open discourse between different sides of the house. I have one more question for you before I let you go with all of the federal gun legislation that's coming out right now with they're getting ready to do this pistol brace bullshit through the ATF. Uh I'm curious and you don't have to speak for yourself directly, but the enforcement of that, there's what, 2,200 ATF agents, and we're talking 40 million plus guns that violate this edict they're getting right. ready to put into effect. Right. Are you seeing an effort to try to get local law enforcement to try to start playing a role in enforcing this bullshit? No, not any sort of increase. Um, do, do, um, do certain units work closely with the ATF, you know, as far as like gang members and, you know, and people that are already federally prohibited from having firearms and things like that. Yes. Um, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, even that, that we can't do anything about it. We can just send the paperwork to the ATF and they can do with it what they want. But Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I don't have jurisdiction to enforce federal law. So that is what it is. (laughs) I love you, Tommy. Okay. (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on. Is there, um, do you want me to link this to your Twitter or do you want me to not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I can always use more friends and more trolls. So come on, come on. Yeah. Um, so real quick, tell them what your handle is, your Twitter handle so that they can come follow you. It is at Tommy, T-O-M-M-Y underscore corner, C-O-R-N-E-R. Is that Uh, because you're in the corner right now? Is this a a secondary? (laughs) I'm permanently in the corner. My old account, uh, which was today's Tom Sawyer got, uh, permeated by Twitter, uh, I think I think possibly because I used some extremely uh, unflattering language to describe Greta Thunberg on one occasion, but uh, <laughs> I, I I tend to I tend to push the envelope, so it could have easily been anything else. Are you kidding me? The shit that I I have no clue how my account has stayed active and never have <laughs> I've never been banned. I shouldn't even put this out there because somebody's gonna fucking try to get me uh, banned. But the yep. shit that I say about Kamala Harris. Oh God! Is awful. <laughs> oh no, no! I, I have used that exact words. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm known for quote tweeting, quote tweeting Joe Biden and saying screw you or you know, it, it, right? You know, I'll, I can always make another account, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Stay in touch. If some things come down the pike, I might use you as an additional resource down the road. Uh, Absolutely. Feel free to contact me whenever.
Okay. Thank you, sir. You take care and have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!